Okay, let's get started, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Sam Galvano. Uh, Dr. Galvano, uh, among his medical training, um, had, you know, uh, put a feather in his cap in a big way by getting his PhD over at Hopkins in clinical investigations uh, with his thesis uh, on uh, EMS management that involved uh, helicopter transport. I uh, was uh, first authored in JAMA um, uh, uh, on the topic. And, um, and is, we're lucky to have him. He's won multiple Teacher of the uh, Year awards. He's the Associate uh, Director of our Surgical ICU, um, is involved in the Air Force as well, which you can see is a, a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel there, and is the uh, Director of the Critical Care uh, Division in the Department of Anesthesia. So thank you, Sam, for uh, talking to us uh, today, uh, talking to us about these two important topics. Okay. Well, first and foremost, it's really my pleasure to be here today. I, I have to say, I think singularly, excuse me, <clears throat> singularly, this is probably the best educational endeavor I've ever been associated with at any institution I've worked at. And I really mean it. This, the Maryland CC project is something to really be proud of. It's a homegrown uh, endeavor, and everybody's talking about it all over the country. So really an honor to be here today. What I've been kind of assigned to do in talking with Mike about what your needs are and some things that I like to talk about um, are two topics today. So we're going to talk about osmotherapy, specifically in the neuro unit, and some of the physiology behind that. And then we'll transition to kind of a completely different topic, and that is choice of induction agents for intubation. We'll talk about some of the literature and uh, some of the, the rationale for what, the way, at least the way we think in trauma about uh, our choice of induction agents. Okay. So let's start with osmotherapy. Uh, disclosures, I do uh, write for the boards. Um, I am funded with the Air Force, uh, DOD, and work for the Air Force. But none of this is really going to be pertinent at all to uh, anything that pertains to this lecture. I really want to just get into some of the physiologic principles that uh, underlie the use of osmotic agents for patients in the ICU. I uh, want to talk about the indications, contraindications and then talk a little bit about the dosing. It's hard to find stuff on dosing when you talk about hypertonic. Um, there's, you kind of learn how to do it, but you know, in terms of looking into the literature and trying to find out how to actually dose this stuff, it's, you, it's gonna be a challenge, I think, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff you read. So I'll share with you the way I think about it and what I've read. I think everybody in here is well in tune with this. Your normal ICP, um, how to calculate your cerebral perfusion pressure in the normal value. Uh, I think this is all stuff that's a, um, a review, but it's, it's important because that's really the goal of osmotherapy, at least in the neurosciences ICU, is to really affect an osmotic shift, uh, an egress of water, okay, is what we're trying to basically do. And doing that, as I'll show you here in just a second, you can actually save a, a fair amount of volume in the, in the, in the cranium. So that's, that's something we're going to try to, that's the goal of osmotherapy, at least when we, we employ it in the ICU, the neuro ICU. Um, so we'll skip over some of that. You're familiar with, again, is a review of how CSF is formed. And um, really, this is the big point, the Monroe Kelly Doctrine. Again, a review for all of you, I know. But something's got to give at some point. And, what gives is brain tissue if we're not attenuating the blood or whatever uh, space-occupying lesion we've got that's leading and causing our elevated ICP. Just last night, we uh, 
had a uh, pretty classic subdural hemorrhage in the, in the OR. So I'll probably refer to that. Our, my two guys from the Air Force who are working with me, these are two respiratory therapists, were right with us on that. And all of these things are things we're using actively at the bedside. So it's, it's stuff that I know you'll use every day and you have used every day. Um, but this is a concept that really pretty much uh, guides the whole concept of osmotherapy and how we em employ it. Two forms of cerebral edema. Again, I, I just leave this here for a review. We'll, we'll go through this pretty quickly. But you know, you have vasogenic edema, which is a blood, bar blood brain barrier dysfunction, that very common in trauma, um, brain cancer, high altitude cerebral edema. Um, as I know a lot of you do a lot of international work as well, so that's something that you'll see. Cytotoxic edema, the blood brain barrier is intact, and that's more of a disruption in your cellular metabolism. So it's important to differentiate between the two because you're not going to be able to affect the same change with osmotherapy depending on which type you have. Uh, these are just some classic pictures of what we see in subdurals. I think um, everybody's very familiar with this. 30% of closed head injuries, and uh, you can see here the left ventricles obscured, midline shift, very obvious. Um, this is something we, we all see all the time. Uh, as opposed to the epidural hematoma, and understanding, and we see this all the time as well in trauma, that there's a lot of overlap with these two entities. There's often, it could be a component of an epidural hematoma and a subdural, but um, usually an injury to the middle meningeal artery. These are the classic things that we're gonna see where we're gonna be employing osmotherapy. And then, you know, an, a large MCA territory stroke, you see the hypodensity there with shift and that right MCA distribution. And just a intracranial hemorrhage, which uh, we tend to be on the weekends here, uh, a center of excellence for admitting intracranial hemorrhages. That's one of our more, co more common admission diagnoses, another entity that you'll have to be concerned with. So the blood-brain barrier has, uh, the function of it is to separate the blood from the extracellular fluid in the brain and the CNS. Um, capillary endothelium, it's normally permeable to water, um, but it's limited in the brain by the blood-brain barrier. Tight junctions, it's a selective barrier to macromolecules. It restricts molecule transfer. And the idea here is understanding um, a concept which we're going to get into, reflection coefficients, and, and how that works. Because what you don't want is osmotic act, osmotically active substances to get trapped in the brain and then lead to more edema. You want to affect an egress of water out of the tissue to save yourself some volume Monroe Kelly Doctrine. That's what we're getting at here. In general, this, this is the management for ICP. This is classic stuff on your boards. This is tested all the time. I can tell you in the oral boards, uh, there's probably no way you'll get out of a head injury or a large stroke case without knocking out all these things. And I know you probably know it. Good to review. The one that we're going to focus on, again, is just the osmotherapy component. Um, so. When do we, what are our indications for hyperosmolar therapy? And it's really hyperosmolar therapy is what we're talking about here. This is when we want to reduce the intracranial pressure and um, usually as a bridge to a definitive procedure. Not always, but usually that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, usually your ICP threshold's around 15 when we're going to really be concerned, right? Because we know that that's when our cerebral perfusion pressure is going to be compromised. So that's really where we're going to be starting to really think hard about. Uh, and then we, you know, we had another case last night, was a classic one that needed to be intubated where the ICP was just spiking wildly. Um, 
And that's probably a good case that we'll talk about in the next lecture because that led to our choice of induction agent and how we were going to manage that. But this is stuff we see all the time, right? Um, so that's really what we're looking to do. The brain water, normally 80% in a normal physiologic state, and the movement is not passive. Right across town here, Peter Ager is a great guy, um, uh, won the Nobel Prize, very nice man. I uh, had the opportunity to, to work with him briefly. And he's the one who discovered that this is actually an active process involving aquaporins, ion channels, lipid bilayers. There's a lot to this. It's not just the simple Starling's law that we all learned in medical school. A lot more to it. And at our level, we're really trying to affect a change on a very basic level by um, rebalancing the osmotic equilibrium or restoring the, an osmotic or, or altering it so that we can cause that egress of water out. <clears throat> well, in terms of this lecture, we're going to be talking mostly about osmolality because and this is just a kind of a technical thing. I don't want to get too hung up on this, but osmolarity is the concentration of an osmotic solution. Osmolality is the concentration of particles that are dissolved in the solution. Both are a form of measurement, um, but we're really trying to what we're really trying to do is, is um, manipulate the osmolality. So that's what we're going to kind of be referring to in this. Uh, lecture. Um, okay, what is the ideal osmotic agent? Well, ideally we'd like something that's inert, non-toxic, high reflection coefficient. And we'll get back to that in just a second. A reflection coefficient, if it's, if it's high, close to one, no particle can pass. If it's zero, all particles can pass through. So we want something with a relatively high reflection coefficient. Um, and this will allow uh, the ability of the blood-brain barrier to exclude a given compound from entering the brain. And that can, that can prevent our rebound cerebral edema that we can get at times. So again, the reflection coefficient is how much a membrane can prevent particles from passing through. If it's zero, all particles pass through. If it's one, no particle can pass. So you'll, look, you'll see that the reflection coefficients are very similar for mannitol and hypertonic saline. And this is something that people still debate, uh, I think, you're going to see at the end of this talk, hopefully, is that um, I think both agents are appropriate. And we have a clear bias here, I think, in shock trauma, at least on the trauma side, with hypertonic. But um, I'll, I'll provide some of the data that shows there's probably not a ton of a difference. It depends on the clinical scenario as to which agent you're going to choose. But this is one argument people will try to make is that hypertonic has a really good reflection coefficient, whereas mannitol is slightly lower. I, most of us don't think this is probably clinically relevant. There's other properties to these agents that are important to understand, um, but this is, this is just one of the technical things. And then in terms of the Starling's Law, we probably have most of this kind of wrong, not wrong, but maybe just the emphasis on hydrostatic and osmotic pressure, and I won't spend much time on this, but I think really where the money is in this equation or anything that tries to approximate or simplify this concept which does guide, again, the egress of water out of cells, is probably more in the, uh, these coefficients. That's really what we're getting at. That's, that's the work of people that are here now, you know, the glycocalyx and um, the cellular layers and how that actually interacts. So that's actually probably just as important as these hydrostatic and osmotic pressures. But to give you at least one example here, in this case, you have a hydrostatic pressure difference that's greater than the osmotic pressure difference 
and that will affect movement of water out of blood vessels and ultimately out of cells. So I, no one's going to expect you to memorize this. I don't think that you'll ever be asked this again. This is all usimile, early usimile type level stuff. But it's still important to understand that that is what we're kind of trying to get at when we give an osmotic or hyperosmolar agent. Um, and then in terms of reabsorption, it's just the reverse. You now have a difference, um, a higher osmotic pressure inside the vessel that can draw uh, fluid in. The rationale with giving something like hypertonic saline, well, we know that the, the serum osmolality is the major player there is really that's the sodium level, right? So that's where hypertonic kind of came into play because your goal is to create that osmotic gradient between blood and brain to cause, again, I've heard me say this about five times now, but that's really what we're trying to do, egress of water into the vascular compartment out of the cells, we're trying to dehydrate the cells slightly so that we can prevent more edema from forming. But you see that the big player there is sodium. So the effect of osmotic agents is to decrease, and this is, this is interesting, you know, if you can get up to a range of around 300 to 320s, which we, we probably think that's what is where you need to be. Um, so if they come in already with other pre-existing medical problems and they're, they're already hypo um, uh, osmolar, then you need to, um, you're going to need to drive them up, and that's the whole goal of this. But even a 1.6 reduction can save you 90 mils. 90 mils in the brain can be totally life-saving. I mean, 90 mils is not insignificant. So if you've got a really tight brain, you're trying to bridge them to something else, maybe a crany, a procedure, um, you know, this can be life-saving oftentimes. So uh, this can really make a big difference. And it can also improve the elastance, which is your delta P, delta pressure over your delta volume of the intracranial vault. Just trying to get at that Monroe-Kelly doctrine, how we can try to help the, the brain tissue not be that part that, that, that's going to give and get rid of the blood and take care of that or the other problem that's causing us to have an increased ICP. But that's really interesting. I, was, I wasn't aware that you could save that much um, in terms of you know, using agents like hypertonic. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, what are the mechanisms? Well, you know, um, extracting water from the brain, sure. Raising the blood pressure is always usually a good thing, especially in trauma patients. We don't want them to get um, hypotense. And lowering their serum viscosity, which is also a, a kind of a hot topic that we're talking about. But there's a whole host of other stuff, and you, you'll have the slides here. Hopefully, I can get those uh, uploaded to you, and you'll see this on the, on the uh, as well in the lecture. But essentially, the osmotic action, slow water transport via diffusion, that's the whole. There's non-osmotic and osmotic actions with osmotherapy. The non-osmotic actions are very interesting, and um, I'll go through this again a little bit. But I, I think just as a resuscitation fluid, I have a low threshold to give hypertonic even for resuscitation. There's a lot of data showing very good um, in vitro effects, and in some in vivo effects, none of which have panned out in any of the major trials as a major player. We thought maybe it reduced infections with spinal surgeries when we gave hypertonic. There's a, a weak study actually across town that looked at that. But there are a lot of different effects. There's some neuroprotective properties which are not related to the osmotic effect, maybe re related to free radical scavenging as well as um, aug augmentation of the cerebral blood flow regulation, um, rheologic effects that can cause decreased blood viscosity. So these are all things that are in addition to what we just talked about in terms of starling forces and egress of, of um, fluids in and out. 
Okay. So multiple different things. Out of the four agents that you'll read about, this, these are really the four principal agents. The two that we're going to use clinically are mannitol and hypertonic. Various concentrations of hypertonic, usually a fairly standard concentration of mannitol. Let's talk about mannitol first. Six carbon sugar. Uh, the half-life's around two to four hours. Um, the mechanism is that this is an osmotic diuretic, and if you take a look at the, um, uh, the osmol osmolarity of the actual substance, it's, it's pretty high, you know, 1,100. It does take about 15 to 30 minutes for this to work. It will lower your ICP within minutes, but it's not going to be the fastest thing to lower your ICP. Getting the head up and better sedation uh, are all things that will work much quicker than this will. But it does, it does work fairly quickly, but it does take a few minutes. And that's another thing that sometimes people will get hung up on is which of the following is the most rapid intervention that will lower the ICP? And the answer is usually, well, what do you think the answer might be? Well, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I, the answer is really just getting the head up is really probably the, the quickest thing you can do. So on your boards, if, they, if someone wants to get nitpicky on that, um, obviously it's going to be a multimodal approach and, again, a bridge to something to take care of that definitive problem that you're dealing with. But this creates a concentration gradient across the blood-brain barrier and extracting free water into the blood vessels, again, that egress of fluid out of the cells into the blood vessels. The problem with this is it can, there's a couple other effects with this though. When you do that and you've got a patient with a bad heart, now you're increasing their intravascular volume rather precipitously. So that's one reason why you gotta be really careful with mannitol, one population that, that cannot, uh, that won't do well with it necessarily if you're not careful. Um, it does increase the, the cerebral perfusion pressure by volume expansion in the short term. But over time, it, it'll dry a patient out. I mean, you'll see the Foley bag will just fill up, right? And this is what we deal with in the OR when someone gives mannitol outside and then we're, we're bringing, or up in the ICU, right? You know, now we're dealing with the osmotic effect, which is not um, necessarily helpful in patients that are, you know, have trauma and other concomitant injuries. So also uh, does promote vasoconstriction uh, by decreasing, in, um, can in decrease the blood viscosity and it does increase cerebral blood flow. But uh, the site of action, this is also important as well, right at the proximal tubule uh, is where the main site of action. This has also been classically a question that's asked. I don't, I don't know if they'll ask this on your EM boards. I think everything's fair game for EM, quite frankly, so it's possible. The critical care boards, have, we have um, put out uh, questions. And understand the surgical and anesthesia boards are now uh, co-written, so those of you that are going to be taking that board um, and I know there's a couple of you that are, those, you'll probably see similar questions. So I'm not giving the test away, but I will tell you that they have given matching questions before on sites of actions of diuretics. So that's a popular item to, to kind of be on top of mannitol. The free radical scavenging has been talked about. I think that's why um, this agent is still preferred in many units across the country. And the immediate intravascular expansion could be beneficial, but then down the road you get the osmotic diuresis. So increasing the cardiac output is not something that you may want to do in someone who's got uh, a bad heart, uh, at least pre precipitously. How do you dose it? Well, um, it, de it depends on, you know, what your, your clinical effect is going to be. The neurosurgeons will often just throw a dose at us across the curtain, not think much about it. They're pretty much concentrating on, you know, taking care of the patient and operating. 
But I, I try to be careful with this because I think that the problem is you can run into some endpoints, which we'll talk about if you, if you just blast them with a high dose right off the top. So most of us will go in the 0.5 to 1 grams per kilogram range, and we do give it as a bolus, and that allows us to at least repeat it every hour. Again, it may not take a whole lot to get where we need to get. We may just need a few mils of, in a little bit of time to get to bridge to where we need to get. So we don't usually go to the higher dose, and that's just, this is what's reported in the literature is the dosing range, and I'm just telling you the way we kind of do it, and everyone probably has a little bit of a different practice, but I think going to the high dose right off the top is not something everybody does. Um, you might want to just be careful about that. We used to give this, I say we, uh, I mean this is back when I was in medical school, but um, we don't really give this as a continuous infusion anymore. It's not recommended. Um, it can actually, over time, exacerbate cerebral edema and increase your ICP. So usually it's a bolus. That's the way we do it. And this is a really great, um, uh, there's a couple references for this. So the classic teaching has always been, I think, to not, have you heard this before? You know, watch the serum osmolality, make sure you don't go above 320. That's probably not a, the best endpoint. If you're really going to be specific about how to titrate this, you should probably get uh, calculate your serum osmolar gap. And there's good references here for this. I, I believe they're, I think they're in the, the references that I sent. I can happily send them out to you as well. But I think this is the way to go. And renal, the, the question there is, you know, with this high osmotic load, are you going to cause renal failure? And you really aren't going to run into that problem if your osmolar gap is less than 55. So I calculate this regularly when I'm working in the neuro unit. And we're, kind of reaching our endpoints where the, the serum osmolality is 320 or higher. I'll go ahead and calculate this, and it usually gives us a little bit more room to work with because a lot of these patients, you know, again, they, they don't have an open OR. We're trying to just bridge them to the OR. And so this can be a very helpful calculation. So I, if, if there's anything you take, a home, take home from this lecture today in this advanced crowd, this is probably one of the, the ones that I think is um, most important. And when you're using mannitol, don't just look at the serum osmolality. Really think about the serum osmolar gap, okay? Renal failure is really rare when you're less than 55. Adverse effects. So again, and this is why we don't like it in trauma that much because it does, we use it still, but I mean, there's a lot of side effects with mannitol. You just have to be aware of them and manage it. Um, you have to be aware that they can get hypovolemic and they can get hypotense. That's not never a good thing in um, brain injury. That goes way back to the uh, early paper, uh, the papers by Chestnut and everybody else that showed that is an independent risk factor for poor outcomes. So we really want to avoid hypotension whenever possible. Hemolysis is possible. You can get a metabolic acidosis, pulmonary edema. These are all things that can occur, again, from that initial increase in cardiac output with that immediate egress into the intravascular space. Some patients may not tolerate that very well. You've got to be careful. And we really usually avoid it in severe renal disease. Um, you know, it depends. It depends on, you know, again, are you bridging them to dialysis or you have something to take care of the renal disease? It's also something you're dealing with, but um, it's usually a contraindication. Um, you can give it during a cranium. In fact, it's quite common to give it during a craniotomy, um, but you need to make sure you've got them bridged to a definitive procedure. That's not going to save you from intracranial hemorrhage that's actively going on. That needs to be attenuated. And then if they have severe pulmonary edema right from the get-go, uh, sometimes we see with bad pulmonary contusions, these are patients we're careful with mannitol. Um, it's probably safe, but, uh, you know, I can't give you any large series on this. You know, it's, it's really your clinical 
acumen that's going to govern how you use it. And heart failure is also key. I, every, I know there's a lot of people here very well versed in echo, and I think it's invaluable um, when you're titrating these agents to throw a probe on and just see where the heart's at. You know, um, It's not even a matter of having heart failure. A lot of these patients are going to have myocardial stunning and other types of uh, myocardial uh, dysfunction related to their primary neurologic insult. So it's always good to just know where they're at while you're giving these agents. And it doesn't take, as you know, more than a few seconds to get a couple quick views and you know where you're at. So I think that's invaluable. So that's mannitol. Let's just talk about hypertonic for just a few minutes. Um, this is really, I, I think we use a lot, of, I know we use a lot of this in trauma. I know everyone who has worked in trauma, this is kind of our, our preference um, for a couple reasons. Just to give you a little bit of um, background here, you know, you're familiar with the bullet. Um, that's the bullet, okay. Uh, it's pretty darn hyperosmolar, 8,000, okay. So really, uh, it's pretty aggressive when we have to give that. Just be aware. I mean, oftentimes the sodium can jump up. If you were to gather or, or collect a sodium right after you give it, don't be surprised if it's even 10 points higher right off the bat. And that's just the way that, that can happen sometimes. You, you have to give it some time to equilibrate. But, um, but this is a really aggressive approach, but it's, it can be life-saving. It can be life-saving. Um, and also, it's important to mention with hypertonica, right from the get-go, one of the problems in this hospital is we don't have, we do have the preparations. They're available, and the pharmacy can constitute it for you. It takes forever. I've asked for it several times. But buffering it with acetate can be, can be really important because the chloride load in this is extremely high. And we know about strong eye indifference and how that can lead to an acidosis. And we know that that's bad in critical care. I think everybody's familiar with that literature. Um, but if it's buffered with acetate, that does help you out a little bit. Um, and we've been trying to get those preparations more frequently circulated here at the hospital, but I'm still seeing a lot of bags show up, at least in our OR and even in our carts in, the, uh, in our ICU, where I work at least, that are plain sodium and chloride, no acetate to buffer it out. So you just got to be aware, this can really lead to pretty bad acidosis if you're giving, giving it over and over because of the chloride load. And that, um, decrease in the strong eye indifference. Reflection coefficient is, uh, it's actually, so I wrote, I wrote one here. Some, some places say it's one, some say it's 0.9, it's high. So it's the bottom line. So it's probably not much, much different than um, mannitol. Actually, I know I did say it was one. So it's, it's high, that's the bottom line. But we like it in trauma because it augments the intravascular volume. This is a patient you know, that may have concomitant injuries, hypovolemia, and you know, we feel that that's, that's an additional beneficial effect I personally like it because it has a lot of other in vitro effects again, which I, th I think I have a slide that reviews it. Yeah, I can get to that in a second. I think I sent that article as well. So we review that in that article and talk about it, but there's a lot of impressive um, in vitro effects. Now, are they clinically relevant? I don't know. It hasn't panned out in any of the major trials, really. But we do like it for these reasons, that it augments the cardiac output. You still have to watch out, just like with mannitol in a patient who's got heart failure. But this can be a, a really good agent while you're, you know, uh, also resuscitating the patient from hemorrhagic shock. And this is not to go through this table, but just to give you an impression of there's a lot of, it's hard to read that, but there's a lot of data on um, neutrophil function, enhancing T cell proliferation, maybe some immunomodulatory effects, um, maybe some antioxidant effects. So these are all things that we would we would ideally like to have in any resuscitation fluid, and they exist in vitro. The question is, you know, does it really help in the real, in the real world? And um, not quite sure, but 
that's all I can tell you at this point. So this is where, you know, if, and I've scoured the literature for this. It's really hard to find and nail down a, a definitive dose. Um, this is some of the stuff that I've found in, in the way we've used it, and I was trained to use it. Um, if you're giving 2 to 3%, a general rule of thumb is this is usually the rate we will put the patient on, 50 to 150 mils per hour. Now, you could use the, a drug formula or similar formulas for hypernatremia, hyponatremia corrections and try to use those formulas to titrate it. I don't, I don't think any of us do that in practice. This is a patient that you need to monitor sodiums uh, very regularly, okay, and stay on top of it. We don't usually go try to be that specific, but what this winds up being is about 50 to 150 mils an hour. We, we will, when we bolus it, oftentimes we will, um, when we bolus it, it's usually about 250 mils, but um, you'll read in some places four mils per keg versus six mils per keg. Um, that's another thing you could consider. Um, some of our heavier patients, and, and it should be by, by ideal body weight as best I can tell. And I say that because, again, I've looked through the literature on this really hard, and it's hard to find any solid data that really guides you know, ideal body weight versus you know, their total body weight. But that's one other thing you can use is four to six mils per kg. Usually we go with a little bit of a lower mils per kg dose for the higher concentration, 3%, and 2% will go maybe a little bit higher to six mils per kg. So if you're really struggling to find that initial dose and you think they might need more than 250, you can use the four to six mils per kg as one other dosing guideline. Some people add a loop diuretic. I don't find that we frequently do that. Um, what I find happens when you do that is they just get more hypernatremic quicker, quick, more quickly. Um, you know, I'm not crazy about trauma patients giving them a diuretic early. I don't think any of us would ever be crazy about doing that. But uh, if you really are struggling and you want a really rapid effect, then you could, um, you could potentially do that. You could potentially give some furosemide. Um, I mean, this will usually maintain your target sodium for about 48 to 72 hours, and then uh, and then it'll usually stay high, and you're kind of hosed because you can't really give them a lot more. But uh, that's a, another question that comes up is, when do I stop? What's my endpoint? Your goal sodium, again, should be to target a serum osmolality of 300 to 320. So usually that's going to bring you up to the 150s range. Um, have I seen people push this to 165 in the neuro ICU? Yes, I have. Um, the people that have done that claim that it doesn't cause any harm. Uh, you know, these are patients that are at way on the extreme in terms of major ICP issues. What I would argue is if you're that high in your sodium, you probably start to need thinking about other stuff. We're real big with hypothermia here. We have a lot of other modalities we can use. Um, if you're really struggling with ICP that much, then you probably need to be thinking about a plan C and D. But most of us will target 155. We get nervous around 160. Um, some will push it to 165, but I think that's kind of your upper limit and you're gonna have some diminishing gains at that point. Um, uh, but, uh, but most of these patients, I gotta say, have not, uh, have, at least anecdotally, when I've at least inherited patients with sodiums in the 165s, there's surprisingly a, lot, a good majority of them, their kidneys are still working okay. So I, I, that's the caveat. If their kidneys are working okay, I think I'm, I'm kind of okay with that, but personally, not much above 160. That's really where I think I would stop or, or think hard about it. We do monitor sodium and potassium every four to six hours, okay? And then, okay, this is another take-home thing, and I, th I know this resonates with all of you folks that do EM. Um, 
there's just so much from the EM world that we should be extrapolating into our regular practice. But this whole idea that you can't give a hyperosmolar agent through a uh, peripheral IV. You know, obviously, if the peripheral IV is tenuous and it's leaky, it's not a good IV, it's a 22-gauge in AC or in a tiny wrist vein, yeah, we're probably not going to want to be bolusing hyperosmolar solutions. But you've got a 16 or an 18-gauge, I can tell you that um, I think withholding a hyperosmolar therapy when you're trying to affect a change in the ICP is way more dangerous than worrying about the risk of extravasation. This is a patient who will die or have major neurologic problems if we don't get on top of it. So I've got some references here. There's four references in particular that kind of go at this, get at this central line versus peripheral IV. But you will still see nurses that do not want this given peripherally. They will fight you tooth and nail. It's better in the neuro units, but if you're in another unit and you're trying to, and you have a problem with ICP that you're trying to manage or waiting for a bed, you may find some pushback on this. Go back to these references. Kindly educate the staff that this is something that you guys I know in the ED do all the time. I don't think you put a central line in every single person who you think you need a hyperosmolar therapy right away. You'll actually give it peripherally. That's what we do as well. So there's really not any damage from boluses. I think over time, yeah, you probably should get a central line in. That's good ICU care, I think, for most patients. Uh, so, But uh, to withhold it is unjustified. Adverse effects are very similar to what I just talked about. The hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis is always a problem. Hemolysis can be a problem. Severe hypernatremia. Um, if they're a patient with heart failure, again, you're causing a major intravascular change that they may not tolerate acutely very well, so you have to be careful with that. The other thing is CPM. This is another one that comes up. So when we start talking about hypertonic, and again, I think this, I know this is, resonates with everyone in the room because you know this, but uh, the safe rate of sodium rise classically described as 0.5 milliquils per liter per hour. But I, I can tell you that there's only been one case when they've gotten hypertonic for trauma recess where they had CPM. So it usually only occurs if they've got major chronic comorbidities, alcoholism, hypoglycemic, come in hypoglycemic, liver disease, SIADH preexisting and then you blast them with hypertonic, yeah, they may be more predisposed for CPM. Those would be patients we have to be really careful about. However, um, again, I, I, there's only one case that I can find when they've received hypertonic for a trauma recess where that this was caused. And even in that case, it was very unclear if it was actually the hypertonic. May have been some underlying stuff going on with the patient. So just keep in mind it's probably safe, and this is probably uh, a bit of an exaggerated um, it's something to always be you need to consider, but it's probably not as uh, big of a problem as we think it is. This is just a picture of CPM for review. Another classic board question. They look if they're going to give you an MRI on uh, this is uh, one of the ones that they can they can try to throw at you. Uh, again, the contraindications I think we went through. So you got to be really careful with renal failure, um, and then again with the lack of buffering, it can be a problem. In terms of mannitol versus saline, real quickly, I just want to review this real quickly. Um, there's just not a lot. I mean, this is a small study of 47 TBI patients. It wasn't RCT. I argue it's underpowered. They did not find any statistically significant difference between um, mannitol and hypertonic in terms of long-term outcomes, ICP, or MAP. So totally equivalent. You can see these lines kind of cross over. There's no stars there. There's no really significance there. 
lot of small studies. I can tell you that both reliably lower your ICP for you. Uh, not really any significant differences in other endpoints. This is something we've been talking about. I think this is a trial we could easily do at shock trauma, quite frankly. Um, so we've been talking about it. Definitely have enough patience to do this and really maybe put the definitive paper out there. So think about that for your research projects. And this is just the last uh, quote by uh, Dr. Todd. You know, almost 100 years of clinical use, been studied for over 100 years, and clinicians are still confused, which one do I pick, mannitol or hypertonic? And as he says, at least for a single bolus, there's really no difference. Whatever one you pick is probably the right answer, um, again, depending on your patient's condition, underlying condition. And then furosemide, as I told you, I don't really, I'm not a huge fan of giving this, but you can, and um, you have to just be aware that the patient's obviously going to have a diuresis. That may not be beneficial with uh, underlying hypovolemia. All right, so that's, these are agents that are frontline for brain codes. Um, I hope that this was a review of some of the dosing and more practical aspects of giving these agents, a little bit of the physiology of how they work. You do have to, these patients do need to be monitored by, by us, intensivists, okay? I mean, you can't really be doing this stuff. You can do it on the floor, but you need to bridge them into a unit where they're gonna be monitored.